1: The United States is in search of leadership on many significant challenges we face at this difficult moment in our country. And on two major issues, the handling of the coronavirus pandemic and protests against racism and police brutality, most Americans are dissatisfied with the leadership they've seen thus far. As cases rise across the country and fears persist, a Washington Post-ABC News poll found that 60% of Americans disapprove of President Trump's handling of the coronavirus. Meanwhile, polls also show that a majority of Americans disapprove of Trump's handling of protesters and race relations. In fact, a Washington Post-Char School poll last month showed that a large margin of voters said it was more important to have a president who could heal racial divisions than one who could restore security by enforcing law. This week, Trump seemingly started off with hopes of turning polls around. But his strategy has been somewhat perplexing. On the coronavirus, Trump is seemingly attempting to reset, almost start over. He's reintroduced coronavirus-focused press briefings. He's even put on a mask a few times and tweeted pictures of himself wearing one. But on protests, it seems like the president is doubling down. Trump has sent federal law enforcement officials into Portland, escalating clashes on the city streets between protesters and authorities. And he's threatening to send more federal agents into Democratic-led cities experiencing spates of crime across the country. So why is Trump taking such different approaches to these two issues, both where he's met with public disapproval? Can his attempts at a coronavirus do-over actually help contain the virus? And on the other hand, how much power does the president have to send federal forces into American cities? As Trump casts himself as a law-and-order strongman, what are the consequences? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Later in the show, I talked to national security reporter Matt Zapotosky about the federal response in Portland and how much federal force the president can use in his own cities. But first, I turned to White House reporter Ashley Parker for more on Trump's change of tune on the coronavirus and public health this week. To understand how this message has evolved, I asked Ashley to recap what we'd seen from the president up until this point.
0: So the president has had a couple of different messages on the coronavirus over the past few months, but all of them have basically been born out of the fact that he did not take the virus as seriously as health experts and medical officials believe he should have from the very beginning, and that there's still, and has not been for the past four or five months, there's still no national plan to deal with the virus. So the president has tried lots of different messages. He's talked about how the virus is just going to disappear, sort of magically go away. He's referred to what we're seeing now as embers and flames, when in fact, those embers and flames are more than 140,000 Americans dead. He's talked about having to push on and return to work and life and open up the economy and saying the virus, the disease can't be worse than the cure. And so he's he's done a bunch of different messages, but very few of them are sort of the serious, somber, rooted in the scientific data that a lot of not just public health officials, but his own citizens are clamoring for.
1: But now it looks like perhaps his approach over the past week has started to slowly change First, he he returned to hosting these coronavirus press briefings. What do we know about why he decided to bring the briefings back?
0: So the president had been doing briefings earlier in the coronavirus, and these were briefings that were originally a couple months ago conceived as the Coronavirus Task Force briefing. So that's led by Mike Pence. That involved all the public health experts and medical officials like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birx. And the president, one day he showed up allegedly just to watch, and then he took it over and he realized he wanted to do the briefings, and they became sort of an outlet for him to vent and fight with the press and get grievances off his chest and recreate some of the energy of campaign rallies. But they were not serving their originally intended purpose as a place to find out, you know, what is the latest with testing? Do they need to be wearing masks? What happens if someone in their family tests positive? What happens if they have symptoms, but they can't get their primary care physician to prescribe a test. And and so finally after a particularly bad briefing where the president seemed to suggest injecting disinfectant in into our veins, the the briefings were stopped. They have now been brought back partially out of the recognition and realization that as much as the president wants to reopen the economy and get people back to work and life, he also needs to acknowledge the reality on the ground, which is that we are still in the throes of the first wave of a deadly pandemic and that that he needs to go out there. It doesn't have to last super long. Ideally, he's not fighting with the media. Ideally, he's not going off topic, but that he needs to go out there and present as the president of the United States, the most up-to-date scientific public health information to the public and offer them a little bit of reassurance and empathy.
1: Has that been happening? How have these briefings been going so far?
0: So, so far, the president has proven himself capable of reading off a script. In the past two briefings, you've seen the president basically get up there. He's had not a teleprompter, but some sheets of paper and he has read off of it and he has said all the right things. He has said that masks are important. He has said that he doesn't like to say this, but that the virus is going to get worse before it gets better. He has sort of read the words of empathy to the public. He's done all that and The one challenge is when he stops reading off of the sheet and he takes questions with reporters is where there is the potential for him to go off script. But on the whole, for two days at least, he has managed to largely stick to a script.
1: And obviously ratings and audience are important to Trump. Are these briefings garnering the same amount of attention as they did back in March? Are Americans still interested in hearing from the president on this crisis that now seems out of control in the absence of a national response?
0: President Trump, when he was talking about bringing back these briefings, it was interesting. He talked about it in terms of ratings, in terms of getting a prime spot, in terms of bringing back the show. He sort of wasn't talking about it in terms of a good venue to offer the latest in the scientific uh, data. But my sense is... Yes. The reason the briefings were so popular before and the reason they began to hurt him, frankly, was that Americans of all stripes were were and are tuning in and they're not tuning in the way Trump supporters tune into a rally. They were tuning in as people who are stuck in their homes, quarantining during a deadly pandemic, who are really desperate for information of what does it mean if I think I was exposed? How do I handle it? It still remains a bit of an open question how much Trump can really... provide
1: that. You mentioned that uh, Americans are tuning into these briefings in different ways than his supporters might tune into his rallies. But how much has Trump's sort of stumbling return to rallies contributed to his interest in resuming these briefings?
0: Partially. The president has been looking for outlets to kind of create the energy that he gets from rallies. But the reason he's really resumed these briefings is not his aide's hope for them to take on a rally feel because that hurts him politically. The incongruity of trying to hold a a MAGA rally in the middle of a deadly pandemic from the White House briefing room is just not appropriate. The reason they have really returned is because the president realized that politically he's paying a price for his handling of the pandemic, and he needs a platform to sort of demonstrate that he is capable of rising to meet the moment as a leader who is taking the science and the public health information seriously, is um, a leader who actually has a national plan to get this country out of the pandemic, out of this wave, and as a national leader who can lead and, and feels empathy. And so that is what they are hoping he can demonstrate with these briefings.
1: And it's not just these briefings. Early this week, Trump even tweeted a picture of himself in a mask saying, many people say that it is patriotic to wear a face mask when you can't socially distance. Is this part of an attempt to reshape messaging?
0: A little bit, yeah. I mean, his aides have been desperate for him to wear a mask. Wearing a mask is sort of public health 101. It is one of the most basic things you can do. It's a very easy thing to do. And it's one of the things that public health experts say actually makes a huge difference in stopping the spread of the virus. And so that tweet and him wearing a mask once or twice was part of an effort to demonstrate that Again, he can sort of be a responsible, sober leader for this moment, but but I will say he's not quite there yet because he gets up in the briefing room and he doesn't wear a mask. And again, when you ask why he doesn't wear a mask, he says, well, you know, you wear a mask to protect others and to protect yourself, but I know that everyone in this room has been tested and doesn't have the virus and I've been tested and I know that I don't have the virus, so there's no need for me to wear a mask in this situation. Well... That may technically be true, but one of the reasons why the president of the United States could and should wear a mask is to model good behavior. He's the leader of the country. A lot of people dislike him, but a lot of people view him as a hero and a role model. And even those who don't like him politically look to him for leadership in this moment. And if you have a president wearing a mask and modeling good behavior— That would go a long way to getting Americans who are skeptical to wear a mask. So, yes, did he wear a mask to Walter Reed? Sure. Did he tweet out a photo of himself in a mask? Yeah. But is he doing what you might expect a previous or more traditional president to do, wearing a mask all the time to send a signal to the entire nation that this is important, this is easy, and and wearing a mask is patriotic? No, he's not.
1: So I think my main question here is, will any of this work, this new messaging and tone, will it work? And I mean that question both politically and in terms of actually containing the virus. I'm asking them together because it sort of seems impossible to disentangle the two at this point.
0: Well, to answer the second question first about will this work in terms of containing the virus, you know, he he said that he, he's he gone out there and he said we have a national plan, but he hasn't actually said what it is. And he hasn't actually rolled it out yet. And this is the thing the president has been running up against. He has very much throughout his life been someone who has engaged quite successfully in the power of positive thinking or or magical thinking. But this is a virus that can't be tweeted away or bullied away or derisively nicknamed away or wished away. So if he actually wants to combat the virus, he is actually going to have to lead a government in taking steps to, for instance, come up with a plan for testing. So Anyone who needs a test can get a test, and not just that, but more importantly, people can get the results that day or within 24 hours. Because if you take a test and it takes 11 days to get your results, that's pretty useless and and meaningless. And you may go out and infect three dozen more people in that time when you're waiting for your results because you think, I feel fine. I obviously don't have the virus, and it turns out you're an asymptomatic super spreader. So he actually has to use the levers of government to combat the virus, if this will work politically, which is an equally intriguing question, we don't know. On the one hand, he is sort of asking Americans to just ignore the past four or five months and his behavior and his actions and his lack of action and his rhetoric, and that's a pretty big ask. That said, I've talked to a number of people in the president's orbit who believe, perhaps not incorrectly, that you know Americans are an incredibly forgiving people, and if it seems like the president finally gets his act together and is taking steps to help them deal with this pandemic and, and showing empathy and just showing that he's sincere and earnest and, and concerned in doing his best. They may be willing to cut him a lot of slack and understand that the, the virus isn't just going to go away overnight, but they appreciate the fact that he's taking real steps to reopen their community and keep them safe. But But we don't know yet. It's still pretty early to tell.
1: So effectively, the president is taking a stab at, at a do-over. But we've seen this so much throughout his presidency. He leans one direction. He tries to take a more effective stance. And then ultimately, he sort of breaks and sends a tweet that reflects the beliefs he seemed to hold from the beginning. And all of that is to say, do you expect this new tone, this new approach to last?
0: It, it's been two days. If history is any indication... This will not last indefinitely. Again, is he capable of reading off of a script? Yes. Is he capable of moments of self discipline? Absolutely. Could this new tone last for another day or two, another week? Sure beyond that, he is, again, and I'm just speaking historically, he has proven himself fairly incapable of long-term discipline. And often he gets into a pattern where he does the thing that he doesn't want to do and he goes out and he begrudgingly does what his aides want him to do, which is read off the script and offer a realistic assessment of the virus. And then he goes back and he watches cable news and he gets furious that he's not getting the rave reviews he expected. And then he gets angry and he, you know, that he's not getting a fair shake and the media is awful and everyone's out to get. And then he sort of spirals. And then the next day at the briefing, he goes off message or he gets in a fight or he sends out a tweet. So having covered him since basically he announced his campaign, I would be quite surprised if he manages to maintain this posture until election day. But you never know.
1: So we did an episode of this show back in May when outbreaks were just starting to pop up in parts of rural America. That episode explored the question of whether Trump's strategy around the virus might eventually change as parts of the country with more of his base would be impacted by the virus. So I just want to revisit that to raise the question of how much of Trump's new strategy comes as a response to what he's hearing from his base about the impact of the virus on them today?
0: I do think one thing that has changed his view a little bit is when the virus first started, the hardest hit place was New York and the coasts, frankly. And those are not Trump's traditional base. But now when you hear him talk about it, he talks about it's in the Sun Belt. It's in the South. It's in states that are Trump states. Cases are spiking in Florida. And I think he is hearing from some of these governors who are allies that that this is a real problem, that this isn't a hoax, that they need PPE or that the morgue trucks are overrun or that they're almost at capacity and they're not sure what they're going to do about ICU beds if they have another three more bad days. And so I do think part of that may be influencing his approach to, to recognizing he has to take this seriously and can't just pretend it doesn't exist.
1: All right. Before I let you go, I just want to touch on something else particularly notable about Trump's changing tone around the virus this week. And that's how it contrasts with his approach to race relations and the related protests in this country. That's another major issue facing our country where, according to polling, Americans give Trump poor marks. So while Trump is taking this new, almost do-over approach to the virus, he seems to be doubling down on his response to protests around the country. It's a pretty stark contrast. Why is the White House taking such different approaches to these two issues where, On both, Americans generally disapprove of Trump's response.
0: The president still fundamentally believes that a tough stance of law and order is one that will be politically beneficial to him. It was one that was politically beneficial to him in 2016 during that campaign. And he's said to, you know, privately to aides and advisors that he thinks, you know, he will ultimately be rewarded politically for taking a a tough line stance on, you know, what he sort of calls heritage, right? Not renaming military bases that are named after Confederate generals, not tearing down statues of Confederate leaders and other problematic people historically, and also taking a tough stance on law and order. The thing that he is grappling with and that he hasn't seemed to totally come to terms with is that this isn't purely about law and order. It's about America's original sin and race relations uh, going back to the country's very founding. And the ground has shifted under him so quickly. If you look at the polling, this is something where Americans are changing their views in the wake of George Floyd's death incredibly rapidly from just a year or two ago. And it's not just Black Americans who are taking part in the Black Lives Matter movement. It's all Americans. And it's interesting talking to some of these Republican never Trumper groups that are trying to defeat him. And they'll say in the polling, people give him bad marks on the coronavirus. But the thing that really upsets them and the thing where they're much more likely to actually vote against him. A Republican who maybe begrudgingly voted for him last time and is on the fence this time is the way he's handling the racial protests in the country, not the coronavirus. They're sort of willing to forgive an act of God, so to speak. It's not that the president's handling was perfect, but they're willing to cut some slack on a deadly pathogen that came out of China. But when a president, in their view, seems to fail to rise to the moment when an unarmed black man is killed in police custody and it's just the latest in a a cascade of these deaths and the president doesn't seem to empathize or lead or try to heal and unite the nation. There's just a a level of disgust that you're seeing reflected in, in polls and focus groups right now.
1: The president, as Ashley said, hasn't tried to heal or unite the nation over recent protests. In fact, his response in Portland has been to send in federal forces. And many of these federal forces are from the Department of Homeland Security, an agency that was formed to prevent another September 11th attack, not to contain protests or riots inside American cities. Images out of Portland of militarized agents clubbing protesters and stuffing them into unmarked vehicles have alarmed civil liberties advocates. The displays of government power echo tactics long associated with authoritarian rule. And yet, Trump has said that the use of federal force will continue. He's also threatened to send federal law enforcement personnel into other Democratic-led cities experiencing spades of crime. I talked to national security reporter Matt Zapatoski about how exactly Trump has the power to send federal agents into American cities. So, Matt, we've seen protests flare up across the country in the past few months. What has the situation been like in Portland specifically?
2: Well, Portland has been really probably the hottest city in the country, particularly in recent days. So for dozens and dozens of nights, you've had demonstrations, sometimes violent, in recent days focused on the federal courthouse there. And police have responded with significant force. DHS, the Federal Department of Homeland Security, actually deployed a contingent of over 100 various federal agents, Customs and Border Protection these people called Federal Protective Service, which protect federal courthouses, to put down this unrest. And by their account, the protesters have been quite violent, lobbing projectiles, trying to set the courthouse on fire using, you know, sort of aggressive, violent tactics. And that has generated significant controversy.
1: How has the president been portraying Portland publicly?
2: He's been portraying Portland as a city out of control. He has, from the start of this, tried to cast himself as sort of the law and order president, the president who's not going to be willing to put up with any kind of violence at these protests. And he has took particular aim at Portland, and so has, you know, sort of conservative media, presenting this as just sort of a city that has, has lost control.
1: The Trump administration decides to, as you said, send federal law enforcement officers from the Department of Homeland Security into Portland. Who are these federal agents and what's their normal role?
2: It's mainly the Department of Homeland Security and various components of that. So I think I just mentioned the Federal Protective Service. Their normal role is to patrol courthouses. You also have a customs and border protection contingent. Their normal role, of course, is like enforcement on the border, stopping of people who are trying to come in the country illegally from coming in the country. There's been this specialized team known as a BORTAC team, which the easiest way to think of it is sort of like the SWAT of DHS. They're normally people who respond to like narco-terrorists and things like that. And then you have some US Marshals, which is a Justice Department component, they normally pick up fugitives, but they also have some responsibility with courthouse protection. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it.
0: In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean. And this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.
1: So to be clear, these agents are not people especially trained in protest or riot control.
2: No, the federal government generally doesn't do any kind of on-the-street riot control. Um, It's just not their normal function. Typically, when you have seen in other cities the response to protests and these kind of armored-up guys, that's often local or state police. This is generally not the federal government's ballywick. The federal government has, like, Bureau of Prisons riot teams that respond to riots inside of federal prisons, which is a little different. But these DHS guys, this is not their normal function.
1: So then why has Trump picked DHS officers specifically to send into cities where there's unrest?
2: Well, it's a good question. I think one is because he can, and two is because if you're going to pick anybody, in some ways you could make a case that DHS makes the most sense. The Federal Protective Service does protect the courthouse. Trump and the administration, I should say, not just Trump, but Chad Wolf, who's the acting DHS secretary, has said, look, what we're doing here is protecting federal property. Customs and border protection is a little bit weirder, but if you have an agency that's willing, these guys are law enforcement officers. They can do it. So Trump has, has chosen them.
1: Talk to me about how DHS is willing to participate in this. How much is their choice or their elective entry into this effort and how much is the president's command?
2: Some analysts, ex-DHS officials who have looked at what's going on, looked at the Department of Homeland Security, kind of look at it and see an agency that has an acting leader, a longtime acting head, Chad Wolf. And so they are wondering, though I don't know that they can conclusively say or prove that boy is Trump turning to this acting guy because he's on a little less solid footing and he's a little more malleable than, say, the FBI would be to do some of this, who has a Senate-confirmed leader. The Justice Department, though, is involved with the Marshals. That isn't like a totally complete explanation of of what's going on here. Culturally, DHS is a little unusual. It's this agency that was formed in the wake of 9-11 to, of course, protect Homeland Security. I think the consent was it would be terrorism focused and border focused. And so it's kind of split since then though, right? So in addition to doing these border things, these terrorism things, DHS has the Secret Service under it. It has these people called Homeland Security Investigators, which do cybercrime. Some of them might be less willing to be involved in the street protests, but these Bortech guys and others might be more willing. There's not a choice when the commander in chief tells you to do something, right? Or the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security tells you to do something. But just culturally, there might be some people in DHS who are more willing to do this work than in other components who would say, well, geez, that's not normally my job.
1: So just a clarifier around the sort of can he do that question here, is it within the president's power to send these agents into American cities?
2: Oh, absolutely. So federal agents, and that includes at DHS, can enforce federal law. So the president can definitely, 100%, send them in to protect the federal courthouse or to investigate attacks on federal officers. I think the question becomes if they go beyond that. So we've seen some video in Portland of people being taken into custody, what seems to be far from the federal courthouse or the demonstrations that are going on. And it isn't clear that those people did anything wrong. And that would not be okay. I mean, it wouldn't be okay for any agency local or federal to take somebody into custody without probable cause. But if there was some sort of pattern or practice of DHS trying to enforce local laws or just sweeping people up without probable cause, that would be legally problematic.
1: In the case of Portland, was local law enforcement not enough to handle these protests? What was local law enforcement failing to do here?
2: Well, in Trump's view, yes, local law enforcement was not doing an adequate job of protecting the courthouse. And in fact, it probably is more the marshal or the federal government's responsibility to do that. In, In terms of the question of enforcing state and local laws, The feds can do that if they're sort of asked. So protecting the federal courthouse, definitely firmly within their authority, you would expect them to be the ones doing that. But if they ran off and picked people up for loitering or violations of local ordinances. That could potentially be a crime. And that is what the mayor of Portland and other cities' mayors have worried about, that you're just going to have this roving federal police force trying to affect Trump's conception of law and order. There's a limited set of laws that federal authorities can enforce if the locals don't bequeath on them the authority to enforce local laws.
1: And in this case, did Portland bequeath that? Did they request help from the federal government?
2: Well, in this case, Portland has become very resistant to it. In fact, last night you actually saw Portland's mayor on the front lines of the protests getting tear gassed. So in this instance, the relationship has become very, very fraught between um, the locals and the feds.
1: I just want to drill down on this difference a little bit more about what power federal law enforcement actually has at a local level. So if I'm protesting in Portland, can DHS personnel arrest me and bring me to jail?
2: It would depend on what you did. So if you were protesting in Portland and you tried to light the federal courthouse and fire, yes, they could. If they suspected that you had attacked a federal officer, yes, they could. If, you, if they suspected you of committing some other federal crime, like a drug crime, let's say, or they suspected you of being involved in gang activity, sure, they could. Now, if you violated, let's say, a local loitering order Without the blessing of state and local officials, no, they shouldn't be doing that. It should be the state or local police taking you into custody for, let's say, violating some loitering order. And no one should be taking you into custody merely for exercising your, you know, First Amendment right to protest.
1: Now, Trump is threatening to send U.S. law enforcement personnel to other Democratic-led cities like Chicago and New York. Why is he expanding this effort when it seems to have gone sort of poorly in Portland? Why? What is he trying to accomplish in these other cities?
2: Law enforcement officials at the Justice Department and DHS say there are two things at play here. One is the response to civil unrest, and that's what we've seen in Portland. That's what we've seen with the deployment of more than 100 federal agents there. In in these other cities, it's a little different, though it's all become wrapped up because Trump is trying to present this as a unified effort to crack down on violence. In other cities, though, like Chicago, like Albuquerque, New Mexico, and a couple weeks ago, before Portland got really hot in Kansas City, the Justice Department rolled out this initiative called Operation Legend. And this is sort of cracking down uh, the way the Justice Department tells it on violent crime. So they're increasing the number of FBI agents and marshals and DEA agents and ATF agents on existing federal anti-violence task force. So this isn't the people who are looking out over protests and making sure everything's cool there, but this would be people investigating gangs and drugs and murders. And those things exist all the time. It is interesting that President Trump has chosen this moment to announce an expansion of this effort because the relationship between the federal government and local mayors is very strange. Local mayors are very wary of their city becoming Portland with these roving bands of federal officers. Like, are you going to then shift to monitoring unrest to the extent we have that? Are these officers going to do more than just the work that they do day to day trying to help us with violent crimes? So it's kind of exacerbated this existing tension because of Portland, even though the way President Trump couches it, it's to respond to violent crime. And I should add one important point. Critics say that this is political, right? That Trump is kind of looking at the images in Portland, trying to cast that as a city that's out of control, and then sort of extrapolating that to say, see, look at all these urban areas run by Democrats. They're out of control, too, in different ways because it's violent crime. And I, the federal government, have to go in and fix their problem. And these mayors, particularly the mayor in Chicago, has said, look, this is just a political stunt. It remains to be seen how effective that federal help here on violent crime would even be. This is the mayor uh, of Chicago's opinion, is that he's just trying to distract from his failure on the coronavirus by trying to change what everyone's talking about to American cities out of control, violence, unrest, that kind of thing.
1: Is there anything that local officials can do to stop this influx of federal law enforcement in their cities if they want to?
2: Some have have said that they would sue, so there is a a, a technically a legal mechanism that they can do and that they can sue. but uh, the legal analysts I talk to say if they're suing to stop the deployment of federal office in their cities, that's just not that's not realistic. That's not practical. They probably are not going to be able to convince a judge to tell the federal government, hey, you can't come enforce federal law in our city. And you can see why there would be good reason for that, right? Like the Justice Department just charged the Speaker of the Ohio House in a big corruption case. In my hometown, they charged several members of the city council with corruption. If states and cities could say, you can't come in here and enforce the law, essentially it would be a license to get away with corruption. So there's good reason that federal, agents are allowed to enforce federal law anywhere. Now, states could sue, and people who get taken into custody unlawfully could sue, perhaps for monetary damages. They could perhaps get judges to remind the Department of Homeland Security, hey, your authority is limited. But in terms of stopping the deployment, no, the legal analysts I talked to say it's unlikely that they would be able to affect that result.
1: All right. Well, as you've mentioned, Trump has long considered himself the law and order president, and he seems to view sending these federal agents into American cities as a way to show that. But in addition to the use of force against Americans, are there other drawbacks to the president acting unilaterally to send federal officers into cities to, as he claims, combat violence?
2: I mean, one drawback is that it exacerbates the tension. So you already have this tension, you have nightly protests in Portland, and then you drive even more angry demonstrators to the streets because they're mad about the presence of federal authorities in their city. Another thing that former DHS officials, former Justice Department officials have told me is like, look, the net long-term effect of this is it just undercuts faith and trust in federal law enforcement. It damages the relationship between local and federal law enforcement. So where there might be a legitimate benefit to having federal law enforcement on these task forces to help with drugs and gangs and guns, now that relationship is gonna be severed. Locals are not gonna want that help or it's just gonna be more difficult. That could be a problem. That could actually hurt the impact on fighting crime.
1: All right, Matt, last question. This week, we finally saw Trump basically tacitly admit that his coronavirus strategy has not worked. He's encouraged Americans to wear masks and to stay away from bars. And yet he seems unrelenting on his approach to protests and race relations. Why is this the one issue that Trump seems reluctant to backtrack on?
2: From the moment he took office, presenting himself as a law and order president has been his thing. At his inauguration, he gave this very dark speech about the state of violence in America. He posted these talking points on his website about how he was not going to coddle the rioters and the looters, seeming to allude to protesters. He's had this very much, I'm backing law enforcement mantra throughout his tenure as president. Comparing that to the coronavirus, the coronavirus is a very new thing that he his position seems to have shifted on, though you know, by the time this post, maybe it will have shifted back. But with Law & Order, this is one of his hallmarks from the beginning. It would be much more dramatic for him to make a shift on that than something that he only really established his position on some months ago.
1: All right, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thursday afternoon after I talked to Matt, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz announced that he's opened an investigation into the use of force by U.S. Marshals in Portland. And he will review federal agents' conduct in recent months at protests both there and in Washington, D.C. And one last thing, I want to mention a survey from the Washington Post audio team. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this show and other Washington Post podcasts so we can keep making things that you want to hear. To share your feedback, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey, all one word. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you want from us. If you take the survey, you can be entered to win one of five $100 Tango gift cards. Again, that's WashingtonPost.com slash podcast survey. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.
2: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In
0: October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is cover-up season four, The Anthrax Threat, available now.